Hello, and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is May 6, 2016, and we will be connecting the dots with Gabby, Doug, and Elliot. Hi, all. Hello. Hey, guys. So, welcome to the show, everyone. Welcome to our chatters. As I said, we'll be connecting the dots today trying to provide an overall picture of what's happening to the state of our health in this ever-changing world. So in the news the last couple of months, um, lots of concerns growing over the medical industrial complex, as described by Professor Mary Holland in her recent speech at the UN on April 26th. In addition, the uh, Disease outbreaks that are happening among vaccinated people, especially in the U.S., the incompetency of the U.S. medical system, sexuality and cultural health syndromes. And then, as always, we'll be joined by Zoya with her pet health segment about why do cats act so weird. So thanks all for joining us today. And we wanted to start off the show today with this Mary Holland speech at the UN about vaccinations and human health, human rights. And we decided to share this audio because it really is telling about what we're dealing with currently with this ongoing vaccination policy, again, here in the United States and around the world. So we're going to go to that clip and then we'll come back and have a bit of a discussion. Our next presenter is uh, Mary Holland. She's a research scholar at New York University School of Law. Ms. Holland, you have the floor. Thank you very, thank you very much. It's uh, an honor to be here. I want to start by asking a couple simple questions to be answered by a show of hands. How many of you have ever, for any reason, been critical of the United Nations? Security Council, peacekeepers, budget issues come to mind. I see a lot of hands. Okay. And how many of you have ever been critical of the United States for any reason? Foreign policy, domestic policy, role in the primary elections, right? So we're here at the UN, we're in the United States, but the vast majority of us have been critical of these institutions at one time or another. To me, this is like asking, are you alive? <laughs> are you breathing? Are you a thinking person? It is human and normal to be critical. Almost all of us have been critical at some point because these are complex institutions with varying actions and inactions all the time. But now, if I ask you, have you ever been critical of your country's vaccine policies, you may be reluctant to raise your hand. And for good reason, because in the supercharged public discourse about vaccines, were you to answer, yes, I have been critical of some aspect of vaccine policy at some time, you would likely be branded anti-vaccine, that fundamentalist boogeyman term, and not by a militant or fringe publication or spokesperson. You might be branded anti-vaccine by the likes of the New York Times, the New England Journal of Medicine, the World Health Organization, and by spokespeople from National Centers for Disease Control and National Pediatric Associations. Your views on vaccines might be considered outside the mainstream, and equivalent to the views of those who deny climate change. You might be considered, as I have sometimes been, a flat earther. 
No matter if your critiques were categorical or that you truly oppose all vaccines for all people at all times, or if you simply believe, as many people here and I do, that mercury should never be a preservative in any vaccine anywhere in the world because there are better and safer alternatives. Many in this, thank you. Many in this audience here today are branded anti-vaccine, although that is a gross distortion. We are called this primarily to marginalize and dismiss our views. But just as most of you are critical of some aspects of the UN and of the US, but think that they are important institutions, most of us have views that are nuanced, pro-health, and pro-safe, affordable, necessary, and effective vaccines, or sane vaccines. So my focus today is on the role of law in protecting human rights when it comes to vaccines. How can we balance the rights of the collective versus the rights of the individual? Vaccines, by their very nature, are a population-based medical intervention. If enough people take this medical intervention, then the so-called herd will be protected from the circulation of a communicable disease based on the theory of herd immunity. Although individuals receive vaccines, the rationale for vaccines is for the good of the individual and the society. One of the core purposes of the United Nations set forth in Article I of its charter is to achieve international cooperation in promoting and encouraging respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms of all. So the UN and the international community have obligations to respect human rights related to vaccination. But how must nations in the UN do this? This is an important question that deserves scrutiny as it profoundly affects both individual and public health. Since World War II, the international community has recognized the grave dangers in involuntary scientific and medical experimentation on human subjects. In the aftermath of Nazi medical atrocities, the world affirmed the Nuremberg Code, which stated that the voluntary consent of human subjects is absolutely essential. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights further enshrined this prohibition against involuntary experimentation, stating, no one shall be subjected without his free consent to medical or scientific experimentation. Such a prohibition is now universally recognized so that some courts and scholars have pronounced the right to informed consent as a matter of customary international law. In other words, it applies everywhere, whether or not a country has it on its books. It, and it's the same as the norms prohibiting slavery, genocide, torture, and piracy. But what about informed consent in the area of treatment, including preventive treatments like vaccines? This is a controversial issue today in many countries, including the United States. In 2005, the UN Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, addressed this issue, adopting the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights based on a consensus of 193 countries, including the United States. The participating countries hoped that this declaration, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights before it, would become a set of guiding principles. On the issue of, of consent, the declaration states any preventive medical intervention is only to be carried out with the prior, free, and informed consent of the person concerned based on adequate information. It further notes that the sole interest of science or society is not sufficient. 
This pronouncement is the extension of the medical oath attributed to Hippocrates 2,500 years ago, that doctors must work for the good of their patients and never do harm. Abbreviated as the first do-no-harm principle, this credo embodies the precautionary principle in medicine, clearly placing the interests of individual patients above the interests of the collective or so-called herd. This precautionary principle leads directly to the view that vaccination policies must be recommended, not coerced. The doctor-patient relationship depends first and foremost on trust, and coercion undermines it. When the doctor-patient relationship is based on coercion, trust is a casualty, and doctors then serve the state, and by extension the society, above their individual patients. This is a slippery slope where civilized medicine has too often derailed in the past. Dr. Leo Alexander, the chief U.S. medical consultant to the Nuremberg trials, warned in 1949 that from small beginnings the values of an entire society may be subverted. He pointed out that long before Nazis came to power in Germany, a cultural shift in the medical community had, quote, already paved the way for adoption of a utilitarian, Hegelian point of view, with literature on the euthanasia and extermination of those with disabilities as early as 1931. Following the medical precautionary principle, the default position for vaccination must be recommendations, not compulsion. Individuals for themselves and their minor children should have the right to accept or refuse the preventive medical interventions based on adequate information and without coercion, such as the threat of loss of economic or educational benefits. Informed consent must be the default position because compulsion on its face not only undermines trust, but limits the fundamental rights to life, liberty, bodily integrity, informed consent, privacy, and parental decision-making. Many developed countries' vaccination policies embody this principle of childhood vaccination recommendations, including conference co-sponsors Germany and Japan. Other developed countries that achieve impressive public health without resort to compulsion include the United Kingdom, Australia, Austria, Denmark, Iceland, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, South Korea, and Spain, among others. Nonetheless, the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights does permit limitations of fundamental rights, but these limits must be imposed by law and must be, quote, for the protection of public health or the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. Furthermore, any such law needs to be consistent with international human rights law. International courts have developed a test to assess whether restrictions of fundamental rights are legitimate and lawful. The test studies whether, measures, whether a measure is lawful, strictly necessary, and proportionate to the risk. The state enacting the restriction bears the burden of proof that the compulsory medical intervention is lawful, strictly necessary, and proportionate. Generally, strict necessity must be the least restrictive alternative to achieve the public health objective, and non-coercive approaches must be considered first. Thus, the state must show that a less restrictive alternative is not feasible before adopting a highly restrictive or coercive one. In addition to these criteria, if a state does, does mandate vaccination, then it has an affirmative obligation to provide an effective remedy for those who have been injured as a result. Like all prescription drugs, vaccines carry the risk of injury and death to some. 
The guarantee of an effective remedy is a basic pillar of the rule of law in a democratic society. And the remedy must actually be an effective one. It can't be an illusory remedy, which in fact provides no relief. Well, thank you for that, Professor Holland. So for our listeners who may be interested, um, Holland is also an author of a book called The Vaccine Epidemic, How Corporate Greed, Bias Science, and Coercive Government Threaten Our Human Rights, Our Health, and Our Children. So for our other co-hosts, I'm interested in what you got out of that speech. Well, that um, it was interesting to hear the quote about the Nazi era, you know, how the cultural shift in the medical community paved the way for Nazi atrocities later on, you know. And after war, after that, it was reversed in the sense that no medical treatment should be enforced. It has to be voluntary. And now we're seeing a change again, a shift that, you know, vaccines are enforced. They, at least they're trying to do that in the U.S., and so we're back again to square one. <laughs> it's like, we, we will ever learn. Um, it's very refreshing to hear her, you know. She's a lawyer, right? Um, it will be very hard, at least for me, to conceive like a medical doctor actually having the guts to speak the way she did on the United Nations. Yes, definitely. I couldn't agree more with what she was saying. Um, and I think it, you know, it fundamentally comes down to, um, you know, to individual choice and human rights. And that's something that seemingly is just being stripped away from the population. Um, you know, some places more than others. Um, but it seems like we're, we're, we're moving towards, um, we're moving towards a state where, um, where people will readily accept um, this coercion and this enforcement of this supposedly, um, you know, health necessity, you know? Yeah. The benefit of the herd over the individual. Mm-hmm. And if that well, were true, <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, if that were true, then <laughs> that wouldn't be such a problem, but you know, <laughs> true in theory. Yeah. Although it should be pointed out that this isn't the first time where there's just kind of like an enforced medical, I don't know, procedure, I guess you would say, uh, like enforced on the population. Um, I think about uh, fluoride being put into the water. And this is a bit of an aside, I guess, but it's just that that is basically mandatory medication um, that, you know, nobody has any kind of say in it in in an area that's been fluoridated. So it's there is a precedent for it, unfortunately. Um, yeah. to have uh, just a, like a medical treatment being enforced um, what, regardless of, what, of, of your personal feelings on it. Yeah, we're in a really bad shape because, yes, there is enforcement, but there is also a lot of manipulation. We just have to see about mm-hmm. the smoking, anti-smoking campaign. Mm-hmm. It has worked so well that everybody's like, whoa, you know. <laughs> we have <laughs> spoken about this several times before, but um, the issue of vaccines, you know, where there is uh, an ethical behavior that is basically a violation against human rights that we have seen and discussed over and over again. We already seen that, for example, the research for vaccines that is carried out in Latin America 
it's mm-hmm. characterized precisely by that, by violations against human rights. People are basically like, they're not explaining the informed consent. They just like collect the informed consent afterwards when it is asked from the FDA, for example, it's just crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the, the, the coercion that's happening. I mean, we see it in the United States, like she opened the talk with, you know, Anybody that has questions or is not sure, they're automatically branded an anti-vaxxer. And then then the fear sets in, you know. So maybe people who do do the research and just have questions, maybe they're not even anti-vaccine, but they just have certain questions, especially with, you know, the release of the movie Vaxxed as people are becoming more educated Having a question about, you know, do I have to give all these vaccines at once or can I space them out? Or it's, it's again, you know, the informed consent is you have to consent. You know, that's, that's now, it. <laughs> there is no informed consent. And now they don't even need a government agents, you know, to to survey the population who's having vaccines or not. For example, now... Um, in, uh, uh, how do you say it in English? Uh, in schools, you know, and even, um, they are asking children to be vaccinated. Otherwise they will not be admitted. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's against the law, you know, at least, uh, on a universal level, you know, you cannot deny, you you cannot deny a child education because he's not vaccinated, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and, and we uh, see that happening in Australia with this no jab, no pay policy as well, that people who receive uh, federal but benefits will be denied those benefits based on the fact that they are not vaccinating. So we have, ridiculous. We have now a hysteric society that is basically like, you know, contributing to all this madness. You know, where's the rationality? It's just gone from the picture. Yeah. yeah, the big the big problem with this as well is that um, it's like it's not even in line with the theory of vaccination. Um, like, say you have a, a population and say you have 99% of that population is vaccinated. So theoretically, those guys have, have this form of herd immunity, this, um, this protection against this disease. So if you do have the odd person who doesn't want to get vaccinated, surely that person can be of no danger to the majority of people who are vaccinated because, well, you know, the idea is that vaccination prevents against contracting these diseases. So yeah. it's, it's, it's like uh, there's, there's this sort of inconsistency with the narrative yeah. and, um, it's totally and it, true. It, it simply doesn't make sense. Um, I think yeah, it's, it's just, like, sorry, go ahead, Doug. Well, I was just going to reinforce what you said. It's like if, if, if vaccines do what they're said to be doing, then an unvaccinated child is no threat to a vaccinated child whatsoever. Like there should be no issue there whatsoever, but they're treated like they've got the plague. You know, they're treated like, you know, that they're, they're going to, they're going to kill, like wipe out the population. We have to keep them out of daycares. We have to keep them out of schools. It's ridiculous. The facts in the ground speak for, you know, the country. Actually, it's the children that are vaccinated that are a threat for those who are not. Exactly. Uh, for example, the rotavirus, the rotavirus vaccine, you know, um, even in families, you know, if a child, they, there is data showing this. A child got the vaccine 
and the unvaccinated child would get will get the diarrhea and they will they will find that you know strains of viruses from the vaccine not actually something that the child got from the community so it's the other way around well there's so much crap in the vaccines i mean the the there there was one article that uh, we were looking at for uh, preparing for the show called the vaccine dilemma unsafe at any dose by Richard mm-hmm. Gare, uh, Richard Gale and Gary Null. It's on SOT. It was up uh, May 3rd. And he goes into all the different stuff. I mean, it's a massive article. It's, it, it's very good. Uh, very, very well written, very well informed. Um, but he goes into at one point all the different stuff that's in the vaccine, all the little fragments of DNA. Um, like there's so much stuff in there that's it's just it's completely they're blind to what they're actually injecting into people i mean there's the stuff that they know about that they're putting in there which is bad enough but then all this other stuff that could be having unknown effects um you know yeah i'm not surprised that you know somebody who gets the vaccine ends up getting sick because it might not even be the the thing that they were vaccinating against that they come down with might be the multiple other things that are in the vaccines yeah well, what was interesting in his article, too, how he talks about, uh, they both talk about, um, you know, this this mandatory vaccination consistently repeats a dangerous mantra, and there's no warranted basis in medical science about it, but he talks about how this is a monolithic industry, a massive network of private and government institutions and state senates supported by a complicit media and compliant media. And they want us to believe that the science has finally settled the debate over safety and efficacy and that all the data is in. So we're told no further research and discussion is necessary because vaccines have officially been ruled to pose no neurological or immunological risk to infant children, pregnant mothers, adults, and the elderly. But the official policy is founded on flawed premises, and we see that again and again, you know, and a primitive understanding about the complexities of the human body and its multifaceted immunological system. So that whole idea of the myth of settled science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can, how, like, how can that, like, how could a scientist ever say that science is settled? Science is never settled. That's what science is. You constantly keep on researching. You keep on looking. You keep on testing your assumptions, all those things. That's what science is. The idea exactly. that, that science is said, okay, we don't need to do any more science. Science is done. Don't take science in school anymore because it's over. We've figured everything out. <laughs> like, give me a break. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It's absurd. <laughs> So, it, it's um, junk science, we, essentially, what is what it is. And that, that's what Gary Null says in this article. It's like, in short, accepted vaccine research is little more than junk science. So we have a caller on the line. Um, hmm. I'd like to welcome Harrison. Hi, everyone. <coughs> Hi, Harrison. Hi. Hey. I just, I just wanted to comment on this thing that uh, you've, you've been talking about for a few minutes that Elliot brought up about the idea that... Um, that people or children who have not been vaccinated put, you know, p- kids who have been vaccinated at risk and how just how absurd and schizophrenic and double thinkish that the whole idea is behind this. Because, okay, so like you guys have said, let's get this straight. So vaccines are supposed to protect against pe- against children or people in, in 
in general getting certain diseases or infections or whatever. And so, um, so they get vaccinated and okay, so they're good. So what's the problem with one kid that's not vaccinated? It shouldn't be a problem. If anything, he's putting himself at risk, right? Or his parents are putting him at risk, but that's not the way it works out. And so if you, well, in theory, that's the way it should work. But when you actually look at it, it turns out that kids who have been vaccinated sometimes end up getting these diseases. And sometimes there are um, like uh, outbreaks of these diseases in populations and schools who have been vaccinated. So it just, it, it frustrates me to no end because you think about the the lack of logic, the lack of thinking that pro-vaccine people put into this because you think that the, the chain of reasoning would go something like this. Okay, so obviously the vaccine didn't work. Maybe it worked for some, but may, but it didn't work for others. So let's look at these people, these kids for whom the vaccine didn't work. If the vaccine didn't work, was it necessary to give it to them in the first place? Maybe we can do some tests to find out what it was about them or what kind of, you know, genetics or, you know, physiology they have that made the vaccine not work. Once we figure out that out, then what's the point in vaccinating these kids? We just exclude them. We vaccinate the people that we know it will work on, and then we figure out how to make a new vaccine for these kids that it doesn't work on. So, so just by the logic of the, the facts on the ground, they should come to the conclusion that certain people shouldn't have vaccines or they don't work on them. And if they go even further, they can look and accept the data that shows that some people, some children are harmed by vaccines and say, wait a second, this is harming some children. Let's find out what it is about these children that makes it, that makes it harmful for them, and let's identify those children before they have vaccines and exclude them from having vaccines. So now we've got two population groups that shouldn't get or don't need vaccines, the people that are at risk and the people for whom they won't work. And, you know, doesn't it make sense? Am I crazy? No, not at all. <laughs> no, but I've you're forgetting that the science is settled, Harrison. <laughs> the science is settled. So just stop stop thinking about it. Please put your logical way. <laughs> I've never heard so much sanity, Harrison. And that's the whole point, I think, that... There'll be a vaccine for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to get vaccinated too much. Yeah, exactly. You need the thinking vaccine. <laughs> All right, well, I just wanted to point that out. Thanks, guys. Thanks for sharing that. Thank That's you, a great... Cheers, Harrison. Well, it's interesting it is... that he, he brought that up, too, because as Gabby was talking about earlier, this um, article that came out from the vaccine reaction by Kate Raines about shingles risk increased by the chickenpox vaccine. Mm-hmm. So who on the show here has had chickenpox as a child? Yeah. Me. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun because I don't remember at all having it. <laughs> I was told I had it. Yeah, so it was it's good. you got time. You got a, to have time off school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And even when when we were kids, you remember somebody got uh, the chicken pox, and then all the parents rushed their children to the friend's house so everybody would get yeah. it. <laughs> chicken pox parties, exactly. <laughs> so Let's get it now. Yeah, exactly. So in this article, they're talking about how the effective um, protective effects of vaccine-acquired artificial immunity do not last long, and that naturally occurring immunity following recovery from the natural disease is what's better, right? So this whole idea of shingles, you know, um, that when you get chickenpox as a child naturally, you're at less risk to get shingles as an adult. 
So I, I found that very interesting. Um, I personally didn't have chicken pox as a child. I got chicken pox when I was 20. And oh. um, I got very sick. And uh, what was interesting was I had a baby at the time and I was breastfeeding. And I didn't know I had the chicken pox because uh, I just didn't know. And I went to the hospital. They wouldn't let me in the hospital because of the contagion factor. But they put me on basically uh, an antiviral. I'm not sure, Gabby, you may know. Um, they told me it's a form of herpes. And what was really interesting was I was concerned because my daughter was only one years old if she would get the chicken pox as a result of me having it. Well, because I was breastfeeding, she didn't get the chicken pox. And uh-huh. several years later, when she was in second grade, she did get the chicken pox and she got a pretty bad case, but it lasted for two weeks. And again, she didn't have to go to school. And then my other daughter got them and four or five other kids in the neighborhood got them. And that was it, you know, and um, they acquired that immunity. So that's my little story about the chicken pox. But this article is interesting because... It's basically saying that, um, and Gabby, you might want to elaborate more on this, but that because of this vaccine, people are getting shingles more as an adult because of the waning, I don't know, capacity for it to protect people. Yes, that's very interesting because when people get chicken pox, they get the immunity that will prevent the virus from reactivating later on life as herpes zoster which is typically a disease seen only in the elderly, at least in the past. When the immunity goes um, uh, in the elderly, when they have low immunity, they will usually have herpes zoster, which is the reactivation of the virus of the chickenpox they had in early childhood. But now even I am seeing these already. I notice it. You know, you will have people that are very, very young, and they will have herpes zoster. And I'll be like, what? You're just like 20-something years old. Why do you have this? You know, you look Mm -hmm. young, healthy, (laughs) apparently not. And this is the trend that they found in in this research that, you know, people are at an increased risk of having herpes zoster shingles, you know, at a very early age. You know, this is... This used to be a disease from the elderly, not anymore. Now anybody can have it, you know. And especially they're warning people and doctors that we will see these even more and more as people get, you know, their immunity from vaccines and not from the chicken pox itself, you know, the disease. Mm. And can't, um, can't herpes zoster virus or shingles, um, can't that actually lead to things like, um, you know, certain complications like brain inflammation and neurological damage and things? It, uh, what, yes, what it can lead, it's like very severe pain that doesn't get relief with anything. Um, people will have even, you know, high doses of antivirals and all kinds of pain, uh, painkiller medication and the pain will not stop you know and that wow. could be per- that could be permanent so wow <laughs> that's a problem i mean it's, it's definitely no joke i've known some people who've had shingles and it is like debilitating it's a it's a really really terrible disease to have so th- this is this is a really big deal when you consider how minor chicken pox is and how serious shingles can be it's uh it you know it's just another situation where where the medical community seems to think that they know better than nature and they can, they can improve upon the way things kind of naturally happen. 
You know, it's, it, it would make a lot more sense to just let the kids get the chicken pox. You know, they acquire their natural immunity and then they, they, that's it. End of story. But no, they have to say, no, we have to come up with a vaccine to get rid of this horrible chicken pox. It's like, give me a break. <laughs> so, yes. So instead of thinking that the narrational way, as you just said, what they're trying to come up with is, oh, we need a reinforcement of the chicken pox vaccine because mm. obviously one was not enough. <laughs> yeah. So you need a booster every once in a while. It's just so it's so obviously just a money grab. Like exactly. it just it, it makes me so mad because it's like something as innocuous as the chicken pox. Just leave it alone. You know, just leave it alone. But no, there's the potential to make some money here. So, yeah, let's go in and do this. And, oh, it didn't work very well. Well, let's give them another one because then there's more chitching, more cash. It's, it, it's, it's very frustrating. And then yeah, it's interesting. You- yes. Go I was ahead. just going to say, it's interesting, Gabby, that you mentioned that um, people uh, are developing shingles, like, younger and younger um, and it, I think it says in this article that um, a case report published in 2014 actually described a nine-year-old boy who had yes, shingles, and that was directly after the chickenpox vaccine. That's, that's completely crazy. Like a nine-year-old, it's uh, – no, you shouldn't. And that kid can be like crippled for life from this, basically. Like that can last a lifetime. Yes, be some people even, correct. Yes, some people even have told me, oh, yes, I always get shingles this time uh, of the year, and it will be like a 30-something-year-old person. It's just that, it's just not normal, you know. It's not normal. And then, you know, when you you go and apply for a job, you know, certain professions at risk, for example, nurses, doctors, um, they will test your, your blood levels for antibodies to know if you had this vaccine or not, you know. And they will recommend getting uh, getting a vaccine if your antibodies are low. But what this research also showed that even though antibodies triggered by the vaccine, even though they are high, people can still get sick. Because actually, it's like there seems no correlation, correlation with immunity. Is the vaccines um, actually lower your natural innate cellular immunity, which is not mm. tested in the in these blood tests, and it, it it leaves you at risk for contracting the disease. So right there, it's the proof that the vaccine doesn't work. You know? <laughs> Seriously. Well, it's interesting in that light, too, back to that vaccine dilemma, uh, Unsafe at Any Dose by Richard Gale, Gary Null. Um, during the past decade, they've witnessed outbreaks, or we all have witnessed outbreaks of infectious diseases among the fully vaccinated, and we observe new strains appearing that escape current immunization. So recently, um, there was an outbreak of the mumps at Harvard University, and uh, it was interesting reading the article because they talked about how they were worried that the commencement ceremony at Harvard might be canceled due to the fact that over 40 students had the mumps. And the irony is that they were all vaccinated. (laughs) So what was interesting, and when we were preparing for this show, Jonathan had done a Google search about mumps at Harvard. And the first article to come up on Google was from Wired magazine. And it was talking about how this is not because of the vaccination, you know, and 
I would uh, encourage our chatters and listeners to read the article. What was interesting is when I tried to click on it and read it, it said I had to be a member, so I couldn't read it. But, uh, (laughs) you know, that, that that would be the first article to come up. You know, it's not because these people were fully vaccinated. Like, go back to sleep. Go get your mumps vaccine. You know what I mean? Well, the point that they were making in that article is that, well, we've always known that vaccines are 100% effective. There's always some cases where it doesn't work, which is, of course, contrary to what, you know, the settled science people would tell you. They're 100% effective and 100% safe. But, uh, yeah, the, the, their point was like, well, you know, it doesn't mean that vaccines don't work. It just means it didn't work in this situation. It's like, uh, okay. Yeah, and back to that article, he was talking about how uh, the European scientists back in 2012 had warned that a, a viral epigenetic mechanisms are steadily evading our immune systems, and therefore vaccines are increasingly becoming ineffective as new viral strains emerge and the length of immunity provided by vaccines are lessening. That is a consistent pattern with several vaccines, like the hepatitis B. You know, people might not get that specific strain, but they will get even a more violent one that just, mm-hmm. um, they, they're just reported in people that are vaccinated. Well, it's just like the flu vaccine as well. I mean, when they come out with a flu vaccine for the year, they're basically guessing on what strain is going to be the most virulent. Uh, during that year and they give you that it's like it's like a guess it's like we guess it's going to be this one so here take this shot well it might not be that one at all yeah well in that article too or in the the article big pharma the recent mumps outbreak at harvard um for our listeners dr russell blaylock he's uh, done a lot of research on uh, cellular immunity and he basically, I mean, this was years ago. There's an article, Big Pharma vilified for researcher for threatening the vaccine program. And he basically says the problem is the media and academic, academia are so controlled by the pharmaceutical giants that the general public has no idea about the research that exists. It is now known in the research world that questioning vaccine safety is a career killer. And we see that, you know, again and again. And that the de- the data demonstrates that millions of people are seriously injured and thousands die as a result of vaccine complications every year. In many cases, the damage caused by the vaccines exceed the risk of the disease they're being vaccinated against. And he talks about chickenpox, tetanus, measles, mumps, HP, uh, hepatitis B, and the HPV vaccines. On the subject of the hepatitis B vaccine... Um, there was an article published on SAR um, on the 27th of April, and it's called Poisoned Needles, Indian Health Experts Question Universal Vaccination. So in the beginning of the article, it's, it's talking about these pentavalent vaccines, which essentially um, are meant to provide immunity against sort of five different um, infections or diseases um, in one single injection. So you've got this um, this five-in-one vaccine that typically sort of covers um, like diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, hepatitis B, and haemophilus influenza type B. So basically in this article, it talks about how there's um, 10 Indian health experts 
who are essentially, you know, they see this as a red flag because what they've noticed in India is that children are just dropping dead as soon as they have these vaccines. You know, you've got so many children um, with neurological damage. You've got sudden deaths. You've got all of these sorts of problems with the vaccines. And um, and it talks about how these these particular individuals, these experts, um, they they sent they sent a letter to um, it was the Indian property management officer. And basically in that letter, um, they were basically raising the questions about universal immunization. This idea that you should um, you should have these this this immunization program and spread it across the world and everyone should have that. And um, and so they basically talk about this study. Um, it says Dr. T. Jo- uh, Dr. Jacob John in his editorial noted that the frequency of chronic infection was similar in both the unvaccinated and the vaccinated children. And he's talking about the hepatitis B vaccine. And um, so, yeah, they, they've basically noticed that there's very little difference between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. But the problem is that the vaccinated children, there's also like severe um, side effects. So they're basically raising the question as, is it actually worth it to have these vaccines? Um, and I thought it was interesting because the letter concluded with, um, in short, expensive vaccines that have little utility are being rolled out without monitoring benefits benefits or harms and which are causing deaths and serious effects as a result in spite of official attempts at denial the public are losing trust in the entire immunization program it talks about how um you know there's there's like an increasing number of parents in india who are basically just flat out saying no we don't want our kids vaccinated Mm. um and yeah, I think it's interesting how you know in India this is starting to to sort of gain some traction in the in the um, you know in the mainstream sort of media. Whereas in in the USA, um, in in the UK, and in most of the Western world, like we just don't have this. You know what I mean? Or it's suppressed, you know, Com- heavily, completely. And the media is very complicit in that. You know, one one thing that was interesting in that article that you were talking about, Elliot, was that the U.S. CDC and FDA basically set the policies for all the other countries to follow. And as we've reported on this show in the past, I mean, the CDC and the FDA, it's not looking out for the good of human people. Massive, (laughs) massive conflicts of interests. And for me, the interesting part of that article was that they have a lot of hepatitis B to the extent that you don't see in the U.S. or in Europe. So you cannot tell if the vaccine is working or not. You know, it's, it could be because they're, you know, people are taking care, you know. And uh, they have a lot of hepatitis B in these countries like India, Sri Lanka. And they report that people that are vaccinated, they're getting the disease anyway. So it's not working, you know. So what should we vaccine? vaccinate you know that's a good point yeah which goes back to what harrison was saying (laughs) (laughs) well and it's interesting how the grip is getting stronger and stronger i mean we talked about this issue several times on the show and especially in the u.s you know the the non-vaccinated population is three percent or five percent or you know it's a very low percentage yet in the media and especially with the release of the movie Vaxxed, 
you know, it's like this constant clamping down and information control to the highest extent, you know, saying non-vaccinated parents are stupid or they're uneducated or, you know, there needs to be a vaccine against anti-vaxxers and it just goes round and round and round. Yeah, it's so frustrating because as soon as you're talking to anybody and they come up with their, you know, um, anti-anti-vaxxer propaganda, it's like you just, you may as well have just turned on the TV. I mean, that's what you're hearing, right? That's where all their opinions are coming from. They aren't informed, despite the fact that they think that they're informed. And it's it, it, it it's like, what's the point in even talking to these people? Yeah, let's just remember. I, yeah. Well, oh, go well, on. Let's just, let's just remember um, Mary Holland's speech at the beginning of the show. You know, it's um, it's a precedent for, you know, mm-hmm. medical experimentation and reinforcement, just like in the Nazi era, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I, I actually found that speech to be very hopeful. The fact that she was up in front of the UN and got a standing ovation, like that's, that's impressive. You know, it, it kind of goes to show that despite what the media shows you, there is a large contingent of people out there who are at least questioning things. Yeah, and seeing the signs. It reminds me also of another report uh, by the United Nations in 2013. And it says specifically the definition for torture, you know, medical care that causes severe suffering for no justifiable reason can be considered cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. And if there is state involvement and specific intent, it is torture. So this mm-hmm. acceptance, this debate of vaccines, anti-vaxxers, is making the precedent for, you know, for st- stuff like this to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially when difficult. states are uh, making it compulsory, like California. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely difficult when you've got so much propaganda as well, um, like the amount of control that, um, you know, Big Pharma has over... Um, over politics, over public policy, over education. Um, it makes it really difficult for people to sort of break free from that. Um, there was, there was a really good article, um, on SOT recently. It was called Big Pharma's Silent Hold Over the U.S. Government. It basically talks about how, um, you know, how, how, how Big Pharma essentially has so much influence, um, you know, over, decisions that are made um and it talks about how um (laughs) how they essentially lobby they lobby um congressmen they lobby policy makers lawmakers politicians (laughs) and um i I found the figures really quite interesting um startling in fact um it says lobbying lobbying expenditures by the pharmaceutical industry have been increasing every year and hit an all-time high of 273 million in 2009. Mm. Um, it says pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies also contribute heavily to the campaigns of candidates who eventually turn, return the favor. They spent $51 million in 2012 fe- federal elections and $32 million in the 2014 elections according to the Center of Responsive Politics. So, Pharma has already spent $10 million, $10 million um, in these elections coming up. 
uh, in the 2016 mm. elections. So basically, yeah. these guys, um, you know, they <laughs> what they can do is they can basically, you know, they can pay the these congressmen. They can they can pay them whatever. They say, look, yeah, we'll we'll give you a steady stream of how many millions, and you guys basically just put in a policy here, put in a law there, you know, just um, and and. <laughs> And that could that that can essentially facilitate what we want to do, um, and and I guess you just have to. It, it's quite hard to fathom the the level of corruption, um, but when you really get down to it, it, it seems as if you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent of um, the people who make decisions are quite often um, in the back pockets of of the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least in Spain, there is going to be elections uh, soon in a few months. No, poli- no political party is, you know, speaking against Big Pharma, you know. Mm. Frightening. Well, another article that we had in uh, conjunction with this whole discussion is uh, Doing No Harm. A John Hopkins study shows death by medical error, now third leading cause in the USA. <laughs> So, uh, you know, basically, and this was in the Washington Post, but nightmare stories of nurses giving potent drugs meant for one patient to another and surgeons removing the wrong body parts have (laughs) dominated recent headlines about medical care. Lest you assume Mm -hmm. these cases are the exceptions, a new study by patient safety researchers provides some context. Published in the British Medical Journal Tuesday shows that medical errors in hospital and other healthcare facilities are incredibly common and may now be the third leading cause of death in the United States, claiming 251,000 lives every year, more than respiratory disease, accidents, strokes, and Alzheimer's. And I just want to point out that these data did not come from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the <laughs> CDC, because it's not required to report medical errors in their data, you know. So they have to use a different database. I understand that they used um, death certificates, which, um, yes, it's good data, but I think it still underestimates the, gra- the you know, the seriousness of the situation. You know, like a lot of folk are really left out from these data, so... Now, that either stinks of um, extreme incompetence on the part of surgeons or doctors, healthcare professionals, or um, now I'm not sure quite how it works in the, in the US, but I know that doctors are being severely overworked um, in the UK. Um, the, the, the working hours are just extreme, you know, that they're really quite appalling, especially for junior doctors. There've been, there've been, um, a lot of sort of strikes and protests, um, because of this sort of policies that have been set for doctors and their working hours and, and things like that recently in the UK. I'm not sure, um, you know, what, what other reasons behind that would be other than incompetence or, or, you know, just, just sheer exhaust exhaustion mm. it's just the system you know when you are like traumatized or when you when you have transmarginal inhibition you are more easily to manipulate like i can see people uh like very junior doctors starting off they're really brilliant minds 
like they somehow went and scanned through medical school. And when they start their practices, uh, uh, their practices in the hospital, I can see them deteriorating mentally, you know, like they will be first uh, very questioning towards big pharma and then they will be like sold out so easily, like uh, accept gifts for going to these or that conference or accepting sponsorship because I'm very vocal, you know, if I if I'm invited to a nutrition talk, which is sponsored by a big pharma <laughs> laboratory, <laughs> I will just say it's okay. And I'll I give talks all the time. It's just like I will not go because it is a clear conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people will just like, oh but oh but oh <laughs> it's just like they they cannot think anymore. It's just frightening. It is frightening. It really is. It's like like the sixth sense, you know, I can see dead people. (laughs) 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 Well, and then in the West also, you know, it's it's really telling when you have, you know, a sore throat or maybe you break your finger or something and the last thing you want to do is go to the doctor. It's true. Yes. Yeah. It's true. It's just like when you're having some kind of problem, you don't want to call the police because they're probably <laughs> yeah. going to shoot you or shoot your dog, right? It's <laughs> like, no, I like my dog. I'll I'll deal with this crime myself. It is it is so pathetic that sometimes I do consultations for people that really need to go to the doctor, and it's just like you know psychological work to prepare for that consultation and how to survive it. You know, and you're sick. Mm-hmm. You know, have to. You don't really have to feel like that if you're sick. You shouldn't. Well, it just goes to show the fear, too, because especially, you know, back to the vaccination issue, it's like, oh, I have uh, this ailment. Well, if I go to the doctor, they're going to ask me, are you vaccinated against this, this and this? And you may leave having to get a vaccine and not dealing with the real issue, (laughs) like your broken finger, you know, something totally not related. You go in for a broken finger and you come out missing a kidney or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, they may of... just oh, they go may on. just need they may just need needlessly put you on a on a dose of antibiotics for a few few weeks or a few months. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. doctors use antibiotics just to shut people up. Exactly. It's like, oh, I've got a sore throat. Well, here's some antibiotics. Well, is it a bacterial infection? I don't know. Just take the <laughs> antibiotics and shut up. Yeah, I think it was posted on RT. Yeah, it was. It was um, a so- uh, an article on SOT. It was posted by RT, and it was called One in Three Antibiotics Prescribed by American Doctors Were Unnecessary. Um, that's <laughs> what the study found. <laughs> one in three um, it was? One, one in three. three. I- I'd probably estimate that it was higher than that, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's like researchers found that about 44% of outpatient antibiotic prescriptions were written for, were written for colds, bronchitis, asthma, allergies, influenza, and viral pneumonia, you know, where it can be questioned. The, you know, allergies. if it's viral, yes, if it's, yes, exactly, allergies, you know, and, it's, and if it's viral, then the antibiotics are of no use. Well, in any of those situations, the antibiotics are of no use. All you're doing is decimating your own probiotics. <laughs> and breaking down the immune system and going to the hospital and getting other diseases when you're there. <laughs> <laughs> is it any wonder that nobody wants to go to the hospital? 
And then I've seen the contrary as well. Like people like, you know, they go to the doctor and they will keep going until he or she will prescribe an antibiotic, even though mm -hmm. it's viral and it is explained. It's of no use. But no, it's just like they will persist until yeah. the antibiotic is given. So they want a pill. Go, yeah, it goes both ways. It's just like... It's like the helplessness of, of, of mainstream medicine against common diseases that could be easily cured with change in dietary habits like allergies. You know, they're like completely helpless to deal with it. So there you go. Antibiotic. Mm -hmm. Frightening. Well, let's move on to a few more topics that we wanted to discuss today. Um, Who wants to cover the what's going on with young women and their lady bits? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this is unbelievable. Um, I have no words. When I read that article, I didn't knew it was that bad. That's my courage. Yeah. What it's, yeah. I get. I guess what it, what it's basically covering is the the popularity of uh, a. Um, cosmetic surgery known as labiaplasty, where uh, basically women are having their vagina reconstructed because they don't like the way it looks. Um, and apparently this is growing in popularity uh, at a pretty unbelievable rate. Um, what was it? There was 222 in 2014, 400 in 2015, uh, which is an 80% increase. Um And it's jumping, the, the age group where it's jumping the highest are girls under the age of 18, I think, if I have that right. Yeah. Under yeah. 18s made up 4.6% of all the surgeries. Come on. I mean, a plasty of your labia because they think it looks too thick, too big. Where did they got that idea? Porn. That's where they got that <laughs> yeah. idea. Exactly. No, I, I swear to God, that's where it's coming from. You know, with exactly. the with the popularity of porn these days, it's like there's a very specific look. I mean, it's the same thing with breast implants, right? It's like there's this very specific look that's the porn look, like the Barbie doll porn actress. And if you don't look like that, then you're not, you know, living up to the standard that society has decided. So, the like, you know, it's just a, yet another thing that women can be insecure about. But this is just, it's so over the top. It's unbelievable. These are teenage girls that are worried that they don't look like a porn star. Yeah. And the main problem is as well, well, not the main problem, but one of the complications is that this isn't, um, you know, this isn't like, um, uh, uh, <laughs> this isn't a type of surgery that doesn't have complications. You know, this is a fairly yeah. serious surgery. You know, you mm -hmm. can... It can cause like permanent damage. Um, you know, like this is, this is major female mutilation, you know. Yeah. That's basically mm -hmm. what it is. And it is voluntary in this case. Yeah. Paid for by your, you know, insurance policy, no doubt. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, I lived in California for a little while and I was one of the things that I found very shocking about that culture is just how prevalent plastic surgery is. And it's like, you know, I was talking about this with you guys before the show, but I, I just, I was really surprised because it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't like people were just kind of correcting what they thought were errors or something, you know, somebody's born with a really big nose, so they feel they have to get it changed. It's like the plastic surgery look is its own look. It's like these people want to look plastic and fake 
it's like I was saying, it's like all the women are walking around looking like they've been punched in the mouth because their lips are so big. They've got these big, ridiculously plump lips, but that's the look that they actually like. And it, I, I see a similar thing with this whole labiaplasty thing. It's just like any, you know, it, it's like they're, they're obsessing over something that it, it, in the grand scheme of things, it just doesn't matter. But it, uh, I don't know what else to say. It's just insane. I agree. I was completely shocked. I mean, I read thought every day and this news was really like, what? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it just shows how polarized our society is really, you know, that, that we would value something like this, you know, it's the exaggerate, like, you know, the whole exaggerated Barbie doll look right with the big <laughs> boobs, the tiny, tiny waist, the massive lips, like it, it's, it's, it's like, there's no sense of balance to it. You know, there's no, there's just like bigger, better, or in the case of a waist, smaller, better. It's like this incredible exaggeration of what, you know, maybe we're, we're kind of like hardwired to find attractive, but it just goes so far beyond that, beyond any kind of balance. It just, it, it becomes a caricature. That's a good point. One of the chatters say, and where are their mothers? I also ask myself, did the parents consent for this surgery? The date? For sure. Yeah. That's their sweet 16 present, you know? Yeah. For your 16th birthday, I'm going to reconstruct your vagina. I, th- I think the effects of, of, of pornography have become so embedded in um, in society that it, this is this is a fairly normal thing for many parents as well because I think to some extent you know they are just as affected or maybe not just as affected as the children are now because it seems to be a lot worse um, now when you compare it to you know just a few years ago but they are still subject to um, you know to these influences. And on this whole topic of, of pornography, um, for, as, as people know, if they've been subjected to porn- pornography, you know, this, this idea of the, the perfect image, um, I kind of get the impression that there's something a little bit more sinister to it as well. Um, mm-hmm. Without getting into too much, too many details, um, I think the reason or the main reason for um, women going or girls going for this uh, labiaplasty surgery is to, um, without being too explicit, is to tighten things up. You know, if you get mm. what I'm saying, it's and um, it, it kind of seems like this whole um, this whole image that people are um, actively trying to sort of um, live up to almost resembles um just almost resembles to some extent childlike features um mm. you know with, with the sort of lack of body hair and and, and everything like that mm. um, yes that's true it reminds me of that news item carried and sought on may 3rd pentagon security analyst says unbelievable amount of child born on u.s military and intelligence computers that's uh, very reassuring. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I never looked at it that way before, Elliot. But I, th- I think, yeah, you're kind of. I-, I think you're right about that. I had often thought about that with the whole body hair removal thing. That you know, that does seem to be kind of you know mimicking uh, prepubescent kind of look. You also see really it in, in fashion 
you know, the very skinny, almost young, androgynous boy looking models, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and you would think that plastic surgery would be associated with models, but when you see fashion like in Paris or Milan, it really is these, they look like 14 year old boys. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's so dis disheartening in yeah. so many ways and you know this you just look at coat hangers walking coat hangers complete sticks no shape whatsoever yeah and, when you and get, especially when you get into it, yeah go on I just, they, when 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 you get into it as well you um you know the prevalence of of pedophilia um among these circles um, you know, it, within fashion or within the mu- movie industry or within the music industry. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But the prevalence of this, you know, this sort of pedophilic um, phenomena, um, it seems as if it's filtering through into um, society. And uh, mm. it, it's hard to say whether this is a conscious intention on the part of those who pump this out. But it almost seems to me as if, you know, um, they are is in some way being forced upon society to adopt these, um, you know, these values. And I guess I guess this links back, you know, totally to to polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's it, it really is, as Erica said, you know, it's entirely disheartening. It is filtering, all right. There's um. This other article of the United States in Utah, porn is now deemed a health hazard. Utah government, um, gov- um, Gary Herbert signed two pieces of legislation, one resolution and one bill this week in an attempt to combat what he has deemed a sexually toxic environment caused by pornography. So now. Yeah, that article is interesting because, um, one was a resolution, so a concurrent resolution on the public health crisis. And the resolution states that pornography is a public health hazard leading to a broad spectrum of individual and public health impacts and societal harms. And it claims that Utah will be the first state in the nation to make this declaration. And this move is particularly significant because it may inspire other states and nations to follow. Uh, the resolution cites um, what is more detrimental of the effects of porn, including the treatment of women as objects and commodities for the viewer's use. It also states that pornography equates violence towards women and children with sex and pain with pleasure, which increases demand for sex trafficking, prostitution, child sexual abuse images, and child pornography. So in the article, they ask, like, well, what does this resolution even hope to accomplish, right? And uh, basically, the resolution has no punitive powers, which it doesn't even specifically ban pornography in Utah, which for our listeners, Utah is a pretty red conservative state. I mean, 20 years ago, it was over 60% LDS, Latter-day Saints. Um, but what it does is it they're aiming to raise awareness and promote education, right? So in the bill that passed, which is HB 155, Reporting on Child Pornography, so this is the name of the bill, and it was signed with a bit more specific 
reasons and actually has endorsement or enforcement muscle. So it basically requires computer technicians who find child pornography doing their work to report it to law enforcement officials. The bill also implies the willful failure to report the child pornography would be considered a class B misdemeanor. And it was interesting in what on SOT when that article was published is it kind of got some comments that were like, well, you know, it's been going on forever and you can't really enforce these kinds of things. And it's just another nanny state thing. But I, I personally think it's interesting that they're even addressing the topic at all. Mm-hmm. It's really pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even really get into the, the effect that it has on the psyche of the people who are watching it. And, you know, the, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but it seems that, that uh, younger and younger um, children would be exposed to pornography all the time. And, you know, very little has been said about what that actually does to a child's psyche or what it does to an adult's psyche, for that matter. Um, you know, the porn, porn is actually quite, quite dangerous. And it has this kind of, you know, if, if, if you take that kind of perspective, you get kind of lumped in with like, uh, you know, funny Christians and things like that. And, um, you know, it, you're, you're viewed as kind of a prude, you know, that it's kind of the, the politically correct thing is to be accepting of pornography and even like, you know, in, enjoy it. And it's, it's healthy and, and all this kind of thing. When I, I really don't think that that's the case. Yeah, and what no. this what this resolution, and not that I have any faith in governors or representatives or bills or anything like that. I mean, because we see so much <laughs> weird stuff come out of the U.S., but it <laughs> it brings this idea of a sexually to- toxic environment to the to the mainstream, right? You know, with these surgeries that these young girls are getting, with all these discussions we've had about, you know plastic surgery and defiling the woman body to be more pleasurable to men, whatever it is, it says a lot about how women are objectified and, and have been for a long time. And the whole, and maybe we'll have a show on this whole topic in much more depth, but you know, even the, um, you know, the sex slave trade, the reality of the fact that it happens in every state in the United States and nobody deals with it at all. They don't address it, you know? Yeah. It seems like nothing's actually changed for women. Um, you know, it seems like if you go throughout history or recent history anyway, um, (laughs) we are still living in that sort of patriarchal, um, society in which women are objectified for the um for the benefit and for the pleasure of the male um and and with the whole you know ultra feminist thing that came out um you know like a few years ago it's just it's almost like uh you know it's just another um facade you know because in the name of feminism women can objectify themselves um you know it's like these people who are who are basically um you know they they're promoting the ideas that oh women you know they you know it's 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 feminist to um you know to walk around with with a bra on you know and and with your bum hanging out you know what i mean and mm-hmm. and like just completely objectifying yourself um 
And yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's kind of like yeah. there's a they, they they're they're looking at it as if that's a power for them, that that that's a way that they can kind of get what they want. Um, it, it it even goes back to like you know that whole Spice Girl thing in the '90s with like girl power, and the the you know the the whole girl power thing basically amounted to looking as sexy as you can so that you know you can you can manipulate and get what you want. <sighs> And it's objectification, you know, in, in so many ways. And really, as we see, you know, this happening to younger and younger girls and, and, you know, boys in a sense too, their whole manipulated idea of what the perfect girl is, you know, the combination between like, oh, I want the porn star. Or I want the prude girl. You know what I mean? It just is so messes with the psyche on so many levels. And I know in the U.S. it's so inundated that children are growing up with just really distorted senses of what a relationship is in every oh sense God, of the yeah. word. Yeah. Well, like boyfriends asking their girlfriends to send them pictures, nude pictures through WhatsApp, you know, WhatsApp application and phone. And they later, later share it on the internet. It's just crazy. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's also like, you know, it is, it is manipulative, but it also manipulates men. Uh, somebody in our, our chat um, mentioned that as well. It's kind of manipulating men or boys often into, um, kind of dictating what they should want, what they should be after, what they should find attractive. So that that's another side of it as well. And which is not based in reality. I mean, the whole nip and tuck thing, you know, I mean, as you talked about, Doug, this whole plastic surgery, I mean, now even women are getting booty implants to have a bigger butt, you know what I mean? And it's like... It's just so disconcerting in so many ways to see things, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's been going on for a long time, but we just see it so much more now because of social media. And like you said, all Gabby, the, the, the all the different, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and all these things. I mean, I know I experienced it because I had teenage daughters and I tell you, it stresses a parent out so bad because you know that those things are out there. And you have to have the discussion with your children. This is not reality, you know, time and again. All but this- then it keeps being, um, you know, promulgated in so many different ways. I mean, they're just inundated with it. All these teenage girls who are getting their labiaplasty, should remember that, you know, statistics show that between 80, 90% of porn stars, prostitutes, sex slaves, you know, it's basically against their will. You know, even historical porn stars, I remember we carried an article and saw it show that she was like basically raped, you know, on a daily basis for ages. She did not have the courage to get out, you know, basically tortured, you know. It's, it's presented as if this is somehow empowering though. Um, and that's, you know, that's the real issue. Um, it's, it's as if people truly believe that, um, you know, that, that treating your, your own body in this way is, you know, is in some way in, um, you know, in promotion of equality and is, you know, it is empowering. Well, 
on that encourage <laughs> encouraging news item <laughs> yeah it's it's just it's so um again disconcerting and i think just the fact that we're sharing this information and that people know and and you know as our chatters you can tell they they feel the same way you know that it's just such a manipulation on so many levels and um it's causing a lot of pain and suffering in both young children and adults you know and having to re- rework those ideas that society puts upon us about belief systems about what beauty is and what love is and 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 all the things that come with that Yeah, and one of one of our chatters just said, "I'm sure they'll have a pharma drug for that feeling sometime in the future." <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, did you guys have anything else you wanted to share today in these uh, topics? Well, I had kind of a funny last uh, little news item to share about cultural bound syndromes and diseases you get if you believe in them. Did you guys get a chance to read that article? Basically there's yeah. a there's a new uh a book out called The Geography of Nat- Madness, Penis Thieves, Voodoo Death and the Search for Meaning of the World's Strangest Syndromes. And uh <laughs> basically, you know, um it's just an interview with the author, but it was talking about um penis theft <laughs> and uh, it, and that these uh, types of syndromes are actually unique to part- particular cultures and uh, um, why you can't get your genitals stolen in America it was kind of an interesting read but what I found interesting about the article was that how um, certain conditions exist only in certain cultures. And just as we've been talking about, you know, um, American culture definitely has this whole female, you know, mutilation, weird aspect of women and girls, and I'm sure it's in other cultures as well. But uh, they talk about these cultural-born syndromes, and uh, some examples which are pretty interesting is... um, Phrygophobia in China, conditions that only exist um, and are, are stem from, you know, feeling a fear of cold and its roots in traditional cosmology of balancing between hot and cold. And then running amok in Asia, a Malaysia, where people go on killing spree and can't remember later. Hikimori in Japan, where people socially withdraw to the point where they never leave their home. And uh, the author talks about how gawking at the strangeness of these syndromes or dismissing them as unscientific or psychosomatic um, is not really the way to look at these things. He carefully considers the relationship between culture, health, the mind, and the body, and um, which can lead people to experience seemingly impossible things. And um, the the interviewer, her name is Julie Beck. She was talking about, you know, this Western body centric, uh, biology centric mindset. Some of these cultural synd- syndromes seem very extreme, especially like voodoo death. And we talked about that in our placebo show. But um, you know, when basically when people are cursed to die at certain a certain time, and then they do. He talks about how there's tons of research showing people's beliefs about their health do are. Uh, 
about their health uh, do shape their health, you know? And um, what do you guys think? Did you get a chance to check out the article or? Yeah. One thing I found really interesting about it is they started talking about, well, what are some of the um, conditions that might be in our own culture that we don't uh, recognize as being kind of very culture specific. And they said that PMS is actually something that doesn't exist in other cultures, that it's kind of a, a more Western culture kind of thing. And that just really surprised me. Like, you know, we, we always wow. think of it as being a, a very, you know, biology centric reason for it happening. And it just apparently is, is more of a, a cultural thing. So I wonder how much, you know, kind of subconscious belief is kind of embedded in that about, I, I don't know what it could be, but, uh, but just uh, around, you know, the issue of menstruation, like maybe the idea that it's something to be ashamed of or uh, something that's not natural or um, might have, you know, cause more of a, of a negative reaction to it. Yeah. Another culture bound syndrome they talked about in the article was gluten intolerance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know i couldn't help but kind of chuckle at that you know oh it's just (laughs) americans you know oh i'm gluten intolerant you know (laughs) that's damage control (laughs) that's a fact (laughs) yeah (laughs) one one thing that could apply in in the the western world is um i'm not sure if 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 it's uh if it's said in the u.s but i know that over here um there's this common sort of old wives tale or not an old wives tale but sort of um belief that if you go out in the cold without wearing a coat that you'll catch a cold mm-hmm. and <laughs> yeah that's um, in the actually, states too yeah there's there's absolutely no basis in reality for that um you know if, if you're looking purely you know from a biological perspective going out in the cold is actually going to prevent you from getting a cold but but it seems that you know this is persisted and um and people perhaps it's the belief you know perhaps it's it, it is that placebo effect people believe that when they go out in the cold without without a coat on that you know they that they get ill i wonder if it's just because it's called a cold you know <laughs> that people just associate it with being cold therefore uh, if i am cold then i'm going to catch a cold I don't yeah, know. perhaps could very well be. Well, in conclusion to the article, um, the man who wrote the book talks about how this was a, a hugely important research that he did, and he learned a lot of things as a result. And he s- says here that I'm not saying there's no biology involved, but there's this piece that's been neglected for a long time that's important in this looping process. It can have a huge effect. Like if you go to the doctor, just the act of going to the doctor is part of your treatment. There's a therapeutic effect just for seeing a healer, depending on how much you believe in the treatment, and that's part of the treatment. We usually don't think of this as part of the equation. And so for our listeners who didn't have a chance to listen to the placebo effect show, we kind of talk about a lot of those things, you know. And, yeah, as you were saying, Doug, maybe the PMS thing, you know, again goes back to that cultural belief again, about the body, about women, about everything, you know, and that I feel bad. Well, Lanader, I am bad. Yeah. <laughs> Lanader in the chat actually made a good point. They said, uh, our society is so influenced by the Bible and that book does not speak highly of menses. And it does get referred to as the curse. 
So, you know, maybe that does have something to do with the Piedmont thing. It's true. It's in tribes, you know, historically speaking, it was a very natural cycle. You know, women were allowed to go away from the tribe to meditate. You know, it was a part of the cycle where the theme really, the veil, sorry, really themes and you are more, you know, mm-hmm. in tune with your feelings. It's, it's considered very sacred. So <laughs> in Western mm. society, apparently it is not. No. Yeah, it's 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 similar in India as well. Um, I remember when uh, I, I was traveling through India a few years ago. Um, I remember we were staying at um, we were staying with the family and in the household. Um, he was telling us about how in many of the houses in India, or maybe it's just a Hindu thing. I'm not sure, but he says that in many of the households, um, when the female um, begins her period. Um, she's actually made to sleep outside in the shed. Um, so, so that that could be a sort of distortion of that, uh, you know, sacred female sort of leaving yeah, and, you know, getting in touch with their feelings and stuff. But, yeah, they actually make them sleep outside um, yeah, that's in the cold. What that's what Clarissa Pinkola Estes explains in the book, Woman Who Run With the Wolves, that she really loves when that is explained, you know, it's because they're dirty and they have to go away. No, it's actually because they're menstruating, you know, they're very in tune with their psyche, with their feelings. So it's like a part uh, of the cycle of meditation. And it's a very hmm. like sacred ritual, you know, it's not like they're dirty or like. <laughs> <laughs> go outside, dirty. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting that in, in uh, Western cultures, it really just kind of gets ignored. Like women are expected to just keep up with, uh, you know, whatever they they do normally um, and basically just ignore the fact that they're they're menstruating. You know, judging from like, you know, maxi pad commercials and stuff, you know, you should still be able to go <laughs> swimming and like ride a wear, bike white. And, and wear white, do, do whatever you would normally do. It should not impact your life in like one iota. It should be just... Like ignore nothing it. is happening here. Just ignore it. Go about your life as you normally would. Well, yeah, and in <laughs> kind of sum that up too. In America, you can get the Depro Povera shot, which is a birth control, which you don't get a period anymore. So, <laughs> God, <laughs> yes, I, you know, I they saw that big big the... pharma has uh, tackled that. You know, and and <laughs> it's a selling point for for women. You know, don't be bothered by that. You know, go six <laughs> months without it. It's fine. You know, I mean that just is so frightening on so many levels. It is, and women are really buying it. I saw it on my gynecology rotations. Like you know, women really lined up to have this implant. You know, uh, insert it into their uh, into their arm. You know, so they will stop. You know, menstruating and anyway. Jeez. More yes. signs of a sick society. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. What about a vaccine? Can we get a vaccine for <laughs> menstruation? <laughs> this, this, I you know. know that question. <laughs> I will not have been surprised. Have you been peeking into the CDC vaccine pipeline, Doug? <laughs> it's, it's already being researched. <laughs> yeah, it has to be an infant vaccine too. We got to stop that. Nip it in the bud before it even happens. Exactly. Yikes. Well, I think we've covered a lot of topics today, and. Um, 
we'll take this opportunity to lighten the atmosphere with uh, Zoya's pet health segment on why cats act so crazy. Yay! Looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Last week, I talked about dogs, so let's balance it a bit with talking about cats. I would like to share with you an interesting recording titled, Why Do Cats Act So Weird? by Dr. Tony Buffington, a veterinarian and professor of veterinary clinical sciences at The Ohio State University. He spent his 30-year career studying cats and how the environment affects the health. So enjoy! They're cute, they're lovable, and judging by the 26 billion views of over 2 million YouTube videos of them pouncing, bouncing, climbing, cramming, stalking, clawing, chattering, and purring, one thing is certain. Cats are very entertaining. These somewhat strange feline behaviors, both amusing and baffling, leave many of us asking, why do cats do that? Throughout time, cats were simultaneously solitary predators of smaller animals and prey for larger carnivores. As both predator and prey, survival of their species depended on crucial instinctual behaviors, which we still observe in wild and domestic cats today. While the feline actions of your house cat Grismo might seem perplexing, in the wild these same behaviors, naturally bred into cats for millions of years, would make Grismo a super cat. Enabled by their unique muscular structure and keen balancing abilities, Cats climbed to high vantage points to survey their territory and spot prey in the wild. Grismo doesn't need these particular skills to find and hunt down dinner in her food bowl today, but instinctually, viewing the living room from the top of the bookcase is exactly what she has evolved to do. As wild predators, cats are opportunistic and hunt whenever prey is available. Since most cat prey are small, Cats in the wild needed to eat many times each day and use a stalk, pounce, kill, eat strategy to stay fed. This is why Grismo prefers to chase and pounce on little toys and eat small meals over the course of the day and night. Also, small prey tend to hide in tiny spaces in their natural environments. So one explanation for Grismo's propensity to reach into containers and openings is that she is compelled by the same curiosity that helped ensure the continuation of her species for millions of years before. In the wild, cats needed sharp claws for climbing, hunting, and self-defense. Sharpening their claws on nearby surfaces kept them conditioned and ready helped stretch their back and leg muscles, and relieved some stress, too. So it's not that Grismo hates your couch, chair, ottoman, pillows, curtains, and everything else you put in her environment. She's ripping these things to shreds and keeping her claws in tip-top shape, because this is exactly what her ancestors did in order to survive. As animals that were preyed upon, 
cats evolved to not get caught, and in the wild, the cats that were the best at avoiding predators thrived. So at your house today, Grismo is an expert at squeezing into small spaces and seeking out and hiding in unconventional spots. It also explains why she prefers a clean and odor-free litter box. That's less likely to give away her location to any predators that may be sniffing around nearby. Considering everything we do know about cats, it seems that one of their most predominant behaviors is still one of the most mysterious. Cats may purr for any number of reasons, such as happiness, stress, and hunger. But curiously, the frequency of their purrs, between 25 and 150 hertz, is within a range that can promote tissue regeneration. So while her purring makes Grismo an excellent nap companion, it is also possible that her purr is healing her muscles and bones, and maybe even yours, too. They developed through time as both solitary predators that hunted and killed to eat, and stealthy prey that hid and escaped to survive. So cats today retain many of the same instincts that allowed them to thrive in the wild for millions of years. This explains some of their seemingly strange behaviors. To them, our homes are their jungles. But if this is the case, in our own cat's eyes, who are we? Big, dumb, hairless cats competing with them for resources? Terribly stupid predators they're able to outsmart every day? Or maybe they think we're the prey. <gasps> Oh, Zoya, thank you for that very informative. (laughs) (laughs) Interrupted by goats. (laughs) That was very great information. So a purring cat can heal you as well as itself. Yeah, she's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I want to get myself a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, all for today that we have to share, unless anybody else has any last comments or remarks. I know we covered a lot in connecting the dots today and trying to share, share these health and wellness articles with our audience, you know, just keeping people abreast on all the different aspects of how our universal human rights are being violated. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, w- I would like to say thank you to all of our chatters and our listeners and um, we'll, we will be back next Friday with another new and interesting topic. And uh, please tune in on Sunday for the show. Listen in and uh, thanks for all your support. Thank you, co-host, too, for a lively discussion. Thanks, Erica. Yeah, we'll Thank look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Have a nice week. Take care. Yes. Happy Mother's Day, all moms. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) 